Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, June 18th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide radio broadcast for this week. This program continues our commemoration of Black Music Month, uh, which began uh, during the late 1970s. The program also features our regular Pan-African Newswire reports with dispatches on the conflicting stories about the status of potential negotiations between the Ethiopian government and the rebel TPLF. Protests are ongoing in the Republic of Sudan, demanding the removal of the military coup regime. There are reports that a soldier from the Democratic Republic of Congo has been killed on the border with neighboring Rwanda. And several Moroccan women are revealing that they were abused by a French businessman. In the second and third hours, we continue. Uh, we, we examine, uh, we continue with our Black Music Month programming by examining uh, two legends within the field of African-American music. John Coltrane has a legacy of innovation and sustained production, which spanned uh, for two decades. Finally, we examine the lifetimes and contributions of Detroit jazz guitarist and composer Kenny Burrell. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with music, uh, jazz music from the East African state of Kenya. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
$14.1 billion U.S. dollars of the $23.5 billion in debt, most of which is composed of arrears and late interest. The remaining $9.4 billion would be canceled within uh, after six, a six-year grace period if Sudan implements the desired reforms. However, in its annual report uh, for 2021, released on June the 15th, the 16 sovereign creditors announced the suspension of the cancellation process as a result of the military coup d'etat that took place in October of uh, 2021. And also, uh, in regard to the situation in the Republic of Sudan, at least 15 million people or one-third of the population in the country are currently facing acute food insecurity. Uh, The Comprehensive Food Security and Vulnerability Assessment, the CFSVA, released uh, this report uh, by the United Nations World Food Program. Uh, This is what it indicates. The CFSVA, a food security assessment uh, that is led by the World Food Program, ascertains the food security situation among the resident population, access risk factors that contribute to food insecurity, and highlights uh, vulnerable geographical areas. This information on vulnerability enables well-informed decision-making processes for the agency's program design and targeting purposes and provides evidence uh, for the expansion of future assistance programs. And uh, also, in regard to uh, developments that have been taking place uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, another person has been killed in uh, anti-coup protests. A protester was killed and dozens others were wounded uh, when the security forces fired live ammunition to disperse the anti-coup protesters in two cities of the Sudanese capital. This took place just two days ago on Thursday. The Sudanese people took to the streets uh, in Abdurman and the Khartoum cities on Thursday to demonstrate against the military coup that ended a civilian-led transition in the country on October the 25th of 2021. The coup leaders announced their commitment uh, to a dialogue process and announced the lifting of the state of emergency. However, the security forces continue to act as if martial law is still in force. The Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors stated that a protester in Abdurman died from a gunshot wound in the trust and abdomen. The independent medical group said the security forces probably used cartridge weapons. The police fired tear gas and live ammunition to disperse protesters outside the parliament in Abdurman. Following what the Central Reserve Forces, who are generally brought from other provinces, chased the protesters inside the adjacent neighborhoods and arrested some of them. With the new death, uh, the death toll as a result of the October 25th military coup has topped uh, at 102 as of Thursday. In Khartoum City, the police attacked protesters at a gathering far from the strategic presidency area and used tear gas to disperse them. However, they managed to reach the streets uh, near the Republican Palace where the new security forces once again used tear gas, and batons to disperse them. Also, the uh, police arrested several protesters. The emergency lawyer said that security authorities had arrested 30 protesters in the capital of Khartoum. 30 protesters were arrested, including five children and four young women, one of whom was injured. Rahab Mubarak, a member of the emergency lawyers committee, had told uh, the Sudan Tribune. 
You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, in regard to the Republic of South Sudan, a South Sudanese official has said the country's leadership prefers the use of dialogue to resolve the political crisis in Sudan. As far as I know, the issue of Abye is at the top level of the leadership. It is not at the level of the Abye Joint Oversight Committee. It is not the level of ABA chief administrator, not even at the level of the traditional leadership between the two countries. It is an issue above these levels, a highly placed source at the presidency told Sudan Tribune on Thursday. The official who preferred anonymity commended the effort of the ABA Joint Oversight Committee, AJOC, in collaboration with the United Nations Interim Security Force for ABA, UNISPA, and local authorities in coordinating security and political activities to ensure stability in the area. It looks like President Salva Kiir has adopted a new strategy. He prefers not to intervene uh, in the dispute, leaving it to his security advisor, Tut Galwak, and the vice president of the Sudanese Sovereign Council, General Mohamed Hamdam Daglo, to handle the situation with the support of the United Nations forces for IBA. This was why the May agreement between Missouria and Ingot has several flaws, but if implemented, it will pave way for future discussions on the final status of ABA explain. Last month, the ABA chief administrator, Kual Diem Kual, acknowledged the challenges involved in efforts to find a solution on the final status of the disputed area, citing Sudan's internal crisis, which has affected Ajax's work. And uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place in other parts uh, of the African continent, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there are reports that a Congolese soldier was shot in an area uh, on the border between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. A soldier from the Democratic Republic of Congo has been killed by police in neighboring Rwanda after he crossed the border and began shooting. That's according to Rwandan official accounts. The incident comes amid rising tensions between the two countries. DR Congo accuses Rwanda of backing the Congolese rebels and has halted all trade and cooperation agreements. Rwanda has denied supporting the M23 rebel group, which this week seized control of the border town of Bunagana. Yesterday morning, uh, the Congolese soldier armed with an AK-47 was shot dead 25 meters into Rwanda after he opened fire on security personnel and civilians injuring two police officers. That's according to the a statement put out by Rwandan uh, defense forces. A Rwandan uh, policeman shot back in self-defense, killing the soldier, it added. DR Congo officials have confirmed an incident, but have not given any details. That's according uh, to various uh, press agencies. When the soldier uh, was brought back into the nearby Congolese city of Goma, people surrounded the ambulance chanting, Hero, Hero. Pictures uh, from the scene show hundreds of people following the vehicle. Civilians cheer as they escort a military ambulance carrying the body of a Congolese soldier shot dead in Rwanda. Earlier in the week in the city, an anti-Rwanda demonstration resulted in the looting of Rwandan-owned shops. On Monday after the capture of Bunagana, uh, the Congolese government accused its neighbor of, quote, invading, unquote. Spokesperson Patrick Muyaya told uh, the international press 
that two Rwandan soldiers have been captured on the Congolese side, which is evidence that Rwanda is supporting this movement. Uh, we don't want a war with Rwanda. We don't want to fight with them. But we are taking measures in order to pressure the Rwandan government. Mr. Muyaya said the authorities have also closed the border crossing with Rwanda between uh, 3 p.m. and uh, 6 a.m. Uh, in the morning. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published th- tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for uh, Saturday, June 18th, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, we'll take a break. And uh, we'll take a break with uh, none other than uh, John Coltrane. And, uh, of course, um, this is uh, Black uh, Music Month. And, of course, uh, we're going to be bringing you a special feature on John Coltrane um, after uh, this musical interlude. Let's listen in.
Welcome back. And uh, that uh, is called Mr. Day uh, by the John Coltrane Quartet. Music recorded in uh, 1962. And uh, right now we want to move into a tribute to uh, John Coltrane. And uh, this is a uh, documentary on uh, John Coltrane's legacy uh, from a historical, cultural, as well as a spiritual perspective. And, of course, uh, his spiritual legacy was profound and still remains so. Uh, This uh, documentary uh, begins uh, surrounding a church uh, named after John Coltrane and his legacy in the Bay Area of California. Uh, Let's listen in uh, to uh, this examination of the lifetimes and contributions of John Coltrane. Sunday morning, downtown San Francisco. I'm on my way to church. But this is no ordinary church. It's a place that celebrates God through the music of an extraordinary jazz saxophone player, John Coltrane. Forty years ago, Coltrane recorded one of the most influential albums in the history of jazz. A love supreme. It's this music that forms the centerpiece of the Sunday service. And the lead saxophonist is the Archbishop of the African Orthodox Church, Franzo King. Devotees come from all over the world because of the fervor Coltrane's music inspires in them. Today, John Coltrane is revered as jazz's last great superstar. But to his most devoted followers, he's worshipped as a saint. religious figures and I was crazy as some years about Elvis Presley I haven't heard about any Elvis Presley churches springing up you know at least not yet Coltrane himself was a driven man in a tragically short creative life he recorded over 30 albums progressively taking jazz to places it had never been before he was always moving ahead he was always in high gear moving ahead 
And even when he wasn't doing what he did, and that was playing the saxophone, he was like a, a crouching tiger, ready to pounce. Coltrane's restless and sometimes turbulent journey started in the Deep South. He was born in North Carolina, where his grandfather had been a famous gospel preacher. When he was 13, both his father and grandfather died within a month of each other. And the traumatized family moved north to Philadelphia to make a new start. And here we are at another shrine to Coltrane, the family home in Philadelphia. His cousin Mary still lives here. She was the one person who stayed close to him throughout his life. He sat at the dining room table and practiced all the time. We just learned how to walk around him. The family was my mother, his mother, John, and myself. And he always said when he got married, he would move, but it didn't happen that way. He stayed here, you know, after uh, he was married. Uh, he didn't move from here until 1958. You were a very prosperous family, weren't you? We looked the park. <laughs> Without money. <laughs> Without money. There's a picture of John. He looked like his mother. He resembled his mother. He was in a house full of women, really. Yes. And I always said that's why he was a genius, because he was raised by women. <laughs> All women. <laughs> His mother was spiritual, so I'm telling John's had that in him. It just developed more, you know, but his mother was spiritual. Coltrane turned professional at the age of 20 and was eventually spotted by the greatest jazz legend of the day, trumpeter Miles Davis. Inevitably, Coltrane was introduced early on to the whole jazz lifestyle, and that included drugs. At one stage, his heroin habit was costing him $80 a day. 1957, as Coltrane said himself, was his year of spiritual awakening. And that was a very important year for him personally, because he had been a heroin addict, and uh, as many people don't realize, a pretty serious alcoholic at the same time. And it got to the point where Miles actually had to let him go. Miles Davis essentially said to him, you love your playing, but you're not reliable. You're not always here, you're not always awake. This can't happen. To finally get one of the biggest, most nationally recognized gigs in the jazz field, and to lose it. That was the slap in the face the culture he needed. John always concentrated on his music. I don't care what he was doing. Drugs, whatever. His mind was on his music. What about when he decided that he was going to just stop it. 
you know, that's what he did. And he did that. He just stopped. He stopped. He suffered, but he stopped. See, right upstairs in that room that uh, I sleep in now. Coltrane went through cold turkey in this room. He stayed here for five days solid, unable for the first time ever to console himself by playing. And it was at this point, he was, he was really at a low point, and he speaks quite candidly. He says, uh, I thought the Lord had taken the gift of music away from me. And he said, I promised the Lord if he would give me back the gift, I would become a preacher on my horn. You're listening to the John Coltrane Festival. My name is Phil Jab. WKCR-FM. This New York radio station has just dedicated two weeks of airtime, 24 hours a day, to Coltrane. That's all they're doing. They're just playing Coltrane. They've been at it now for five days, non-stop. So nine days to go. But there's plenty to choose from. Coltrane's output was prodigious from the start. The album, Blue Train, established him as a brilliant composer as well as player. More and more records followed swiftly on, all of them instant critical successes in the jazz world. Then, unexpectedly, there was a hit single. constant variations on um, favourite things, which he used to play internally and could play 45 minutes non-stop, I gather, live if he wanted to do. Uh, the, very, the very familiarity of it, you can get used to listening to favourite things and get used to the fact that it really is stream of consciousness, improvisation and, um, you know, you can, you can, I, I wouldn't claim to be able to tell you which version you're getting now because I don't know how many times you recorded it. He seems to have played it the whole damn time. Just had one tune he was obsessive with. Rogers and Hammerstein's sugar-sweet score to the sound of music might seem an unlikely inspiration for a musical innovator. But my favourite things instantly became Coltrane's signature tune. Train played this song for the rest of his life. The instant appeal of the melody made it a massive commercial hit. So much so, in fact, that by 1961, when Coltrane came to Europe, he'd become the biggest name in jazz. He started his tour in London, and nobody who saw the show would ever forget it. I know that this concert was a, you know, a moment of epiphany or whatever. For, for many people, it was, a, it was um, an exciting wonderful moment and I can remember people in the audience shouting with enthusiasm I suppose with ecstasy I think he played my favorite things just for the whole concert and 
it was very special. But I didn't really understand quite what it was. I just had a feeling in me that I was witnessing something extraordinary. I really felt it was a, a religious experience almost listening to that stuff of his. It's typical of Coltrane's obsessive nature that he could play one song for an entire show. This wasn't an affectation. He was virtually welded to his sax. When he complained to Miles Davis that he didn't know how to stop, Davis answered, try taking the mother out of your mouth. I dare say that he suggested some of these poses as much as I did. I and mean, if you look at them, he's actually blowing his instrument in all those where he's got the instrument in his mouth. Looking at them now, I can see he had a lot of time for other people. There's a feeling of um, peace about these photographs. They're not photographs of somebody who's anxious to get rid of you. They're someone who's just giving you his time. Coltrane amazes me because he was such a great musician, such an unbelievable musician, and yet he was truly humble. And I don't mean show business humble. Show business humble is kind of like, ah, twant, nothing, you know. Uh, no, no, you know, thanks anyway. But he really was humble. I mean, he really was highly self-critical. Others were becoming critical too, especially British jazz writers, who were baffled by Coltrane's performances and his seemingly endless variations on a simple theme. This review in The Melody Maker said the music belonged more to the realms of higher mathematics. Coltrane never answered these charges. He rarely spoke to the media. He only cared about making music. He didn't feel angry. He just felt misunderstood. They uh, seem to think that it's an angry sort of thing. There's a, some of them, do, I don't know. But do the critics feel, here. Do you feel angry? No, I don't. I play so many sounds, maybe it sounds angry, because I'm I'm trying so many things at one time, you see. Like, I haven't sorted them out. I have a whole bag of things that I'm trying to work through and get the one essential, you know. There are some set harmonic devices that I know that will uh, take me out of the ordinary pass, you see, if I use these. But I haven't played them enough, and I'm not familiar with them enough yet, to take the one single line through them, so I play all of them. Jazz classic, wise. John Coltrane Festival, here at radio station WKCRFM, New York. He went through a blue period in pointillism and something else. And that's what John was doing musically. You know, experimenting and searching and skydiving with his parachute. And, you know, he was taking chances and just trying to see what he could. He told somebody, he said, uh, he approached to some drummer and asked him would he like to play with him. And then the drummer said, well, well what are you doing? He says, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> But he knew he wanted to do something. He was trying to find out by doing this and this and this. 
to try to arrive at what he felt. It was so new that he didn't even know himself what it was. And that's when he developed these ribbons of sound. These ideas were like ribbon streamers going across landscapes. Coltrane drove himself relentlessly, both physically and musically. It was all or nothing. He really was on a quest, a journey of discovery with no boundaries. And there's a story for me that really sums this up. Between sets in San Francisco, he would reputedly leave the venue, walk 10 or 12 blocks with a pair of binoculars, and gaze at the night stars. In every waking moment, he was looking for inspiration. He would practice during the day, play at night, play during intermission in the kitchen or the men's room, go home and play at night, fall asleep in the bed with the horn on his chest, you know. Practice like a man with no talent, and he had all the talent in the world. Playing like that, it'll set him aside from everybody else. describing to me how um, after a performance he went up to his house uh, uptown uh, to see him. He opened the door and John was lying on the bed asleep with the saxophone on his stomach. <laughs> he just practiced himself to sleep. I've come to meet pianist McCoy Tyner he was just 21 when Coltrane stole him from Benny Golson's band. Coltrane was now putting together a new quartet, and McCoy was expecting to be stretched by Coltrane's new sounds. He, and he did do certain kind of versions, like My Favourite Things, obviously, is mm -hmm. one of those yeah, pieces. But it yeah. was rare that he tackled anything which might have a kind of a popular idiot, wasn't it? Yeah, what he realised is that... Um, Maybe there's nothing wrong with doing my favorite things. Actually, when it was brought to my attention, uh, I asked him, I said, we gonna, you, know, you want to do that? Or, you know, that, you know <laughs> I had heard it, but, you know, um, and, and I never thought we'd, we'd do it, but it worked. Yeah, nice. And then we did Chim Chim Tree, we did that, you know. But he never sacrificed uh, in terms of what he, uh, what he wanted to do with those songs. It was never a compromise kind of thing, you know. He always played on them, even though the melody might be very familiar to the public, but he always gave you a great performance. One thing about playing with John is that I realized that music is a language. It really is. You punctuate, you, you know, there's high points, low points, um, it has a lot of, uh, uh, you can express a lot of the human emotions through it, you know, it's just, just, just a wonderful way um, to express yourself. I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to play with him because he was my teacher. By the early 1960s, Coltrane had assembled his classic quartet, Tyner on piano, 
Jimmy Garrison on bass, Elvin Jones on drums. They hit the road with Coltrane's trademark passion and drive. There were endless rounds of touring. Coltrane was terrified of flying, so the band would cram themselves into a van and drive coast to coast across America for six weeks solid. And then a six-week stint in New York. Life on the road was exhausting, so Coltrane fell back on one of his lifelong passions, eating. Food was a comfort thing for him. It was even reported that he ate so many mint humbugs, his sax keys became clogged up with sugar. And he would come home from the roads, you know, he would tell her mother, Aunt Betty, I want a hundred rolls. <laughs> and then she'd try to make him a hundred rolls or something. And he, uh, he, but he liked to eat. We used to look for places that served brains and eggs. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. The brain from a hog. You get those brains and you saute it with onions and with eggs. And we loved it. Both of us did. And I don't know if you know what hominy grits are. Grits, people call it. Grits and gravy and biscuits. And we'd look for a restaurant serving that and we found it. As long as we were there, that's where we were every morning. Having brains and eggs, grits with gravy and biscuits. years on, it isn't easy to retrace Coltrane's footsteps in a constantly changing New York. I went to look for one of the venues most associated with the Coltrane legend. It's now become, appropriately enough, a deli. Classic. My favorite things. Year 2.30, the John Coltrane Festival, here at Radio Station. This was the half note, the most famous jazz club in New York. And in the 60s, Coltrane more or less invented the avant-garde here. The stage was up there and it was incredibly cramped. They used to perform literally standing on the bar. You can't even see where McCoy is, the pianist, he's stuck there in the back. There's a great shot of Coltrane, slightly overweight as he was in the last years. Coltrane was only in his mid-thirties, but already he'd become a kind of guru of the jazz avant-garde. There was now virtually a school of Coltrane and a host of eager young acolytes. He was surrounded constantly by people like Pharaoh Sanders, Wayne Shorter. They were all there. Uh, uh, John was a Buddha and we were his disciples. People took advantage of him and they took advantage of his humility and, uh, uh, and his generosity. He never spoke about himself actually except when he talked about the musical problems that he might be having and then he was quite honest uh, and he, uh, he almost made the person he was talking to feel as though uh, they were equal to him in uh, expertise. There was a lot of musical sense to what he was doing because he saw that in the Negro spiritual we had the, the basic uh, African pentatonic scale. Uh, 
So that these things were not really re- simple recapitulations of gospel songs, but, but they were artistic works in the sense that uh, 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 that uh, Mozart or, or, or Bach would, 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 would write an oratorio, except it was an improvised poem, a musical poem. In 1964, in a burst of inspiration, Coltrane produced his masterpiece, A Love Supreme. It was composed in his new suburban family home, far away from the pressures of New York's jazz scene. Up until a few weeks ago, the last house that Coltrane lived in, this house over there, was lost from memory. If it wasn't for a delivery boy who had worked in a pharmacy and delivered medicine to Coltrane, we'd never even have known about it. You can see here uh, a real estate sign. On March the 3rd, and today we're 10 days later, this house was going to be demolished to make way for a development. The house is in Dix Hills, a sleepy suburban town in Long Island. Coltrane, now a huge star in the jazz world, retreated here, looking for peace and quiet, and a place where he could bring up a family and concentrate on composing. His wife Alice later said that when she brought home their newborn son, John locked himself away for five days, receiving a love supreme in its entirety as a revelation from God. Dix Hills has, of course, become another shrine to the Coltrane cult, and today, his biggest Japanese fan is visiting at last. So, Fuji, we just made it. Yeah. Here we are, the spiritual home of love. Yes, it is. We are. So, yeah. so you, I see, as, a, as Coltrane's true disciple. Yeah. For how many years is that now? Oh, for me? Like over 30 years. 30 years. Yeah, finally, I get the, the place here. For me, it's like a Mecca. It must have been a big change. Yeah. Moving from Manhattan or from Queens yeah. to move to this place. Yeah. Why did he move here, do you think? I think, you know, he doesn't like so much noise, you know, visiting people, you know, knock on the door and a phone call or something, you know. Just he wants to spend his time with his family. Because if he lives in Manhattan, so many cats, you know, come and visit. Hey, hey man, John, let's get together, have practice, or, you know, uh, so have he, he was avoiding the, being disturbed. Yes, I cats. think so, you know, away from Manhattan, like one hour driving, it's very calm and safe and really neighbor, good neighborhood and, you know, just beautiful, you know, atmosphere. He made a love supreme, remarkable album of his life. He made this house. And he made a, like a meditation, and like five days, he was, you know, he didn't came up. And then he meditated, he composed it, and then he drive to the uh, studio. The place where Coltrane recorded a Love Supreme is itself legendary. The Rudy Van Gelder Studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Rudy started his recording career in the living room of his parents' house in Hackensack, where he made records with most of the giants of jazz, from Miles Davis to Ornette Coleman. 
Then he moved to this amazing place, designed and built by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright to Van Gelder's exacting specifications. I had been recording John for many years, from you know, from the time I was in Hackensack, which was in the late 50s, up to the time that Love Supreme was. So I didn't really, I was so used to having him here, and I knew what he sounded like. I had a feeling that I wanted to, I, that I knew what he wanted to sound like. Many of these sessions, John would call me directly, and uh, he'd say, Rudy, I'd like to come in on Wednesday evening, say at 7 o'clock, and I want to work out one tune or two tunes, and I'd say, sure. So I'd write him in the book, and he'd come in at 7. There wouldn't even be a producer here. Then it was just between John and myself. John would uh, sketch out the, the tune to the other people there, and uh, away we'd go. Did he try things out and then would improvise and do different kinds of I don't of remember him doing a lot of takes. I don't remember. It's possible I've forgotten some details, but uh, I don't remember that. He, actually, what I did like about working for him is he knew when he, when he had it right. A Love Supreme was a breakthrough record for Coltrane. And not just because it sold thousands more copies than any of his other albums. It was the fulfillment of the promise that got him through cold turkey. Repaying God by preaching on the horn. Musically spelling out a prayer, word by word, syllable by syllable. He wrote the prayer out as a poem, a kind of template for the music. I first gave it as a lecture in 1980 about how the words are expressed uh, syllable by syllable in the saxophone part on the last movement of Love Supreme. And when I started to give it around at jazz schools as a lecture, I found invariably there was one person in the audience who was aware of that already. So I think it's something that other people also heard. But interestingly, Coltrane himself never specifically said that. And in fact, he was asked once in a French interview in 1965, do you think it's important to know the words? The interviewer just meant in a general way he wasn't aware of this either. So, But it was an opportunity. Coltrane could have said, you better know the words because I'm playing them on the saxophone. And, but, you know, he wasn't like that. He was very low-key. And instead he said, um, it might help you to get a feel for the piece, you know, something to that effect. So he didn't uh, let on. And people kind of had to come to it themselves. <laughs> following is definitely unique. He really made a difference to people. I mean, I met people after having done my book. I met a fella who said, you know, I was a heroin addict until I got a love supreme and until I realized that Coltrane had been a heroin addict and then here was this fellow who really reformed and got his life together. And I, I knew I had to quit and get my life together. And that may sound uh, apocryphal, but apparently there are many, many people who had similar experiences, not necessarily with heroin, but with Coltrane as a role model, with Coltrane as a person who wasn't only a musician, but was somebody who could say, you know, you really can be a good person, and it's important to work on yourself and to progress and to improve yourself. Mm -hmm. 
Coltrane only once performed A Love Supreme live at the Antibes Jazz Festival in July 1965. This film, only recently discovered and shown here for the first time, reveals Coltrane lost in the music, working through his masterpiece for the final time. I wonder sometimes what makes an artist to stand out that way, whether you want to use the word greatness or genius or whatever. And I think uh, one thing in the world of art is an ability that not everybody has to bear yourself in front of an audience. I mean, what Coltrane did was absolute, you know, he was absolutely naked in front of an audience. I mean, there's nothing uh, feeling-wise that he held back on. And there, it's not only the, the pity feelings as anyone who's heard Coltrane's music knows. I mean, it's every feeling. It's the intensity and the anger and the passion and everything. The hurt and the love is all in there. It's a miracle this footage exists at all. Coltrane only played a love supreme because the festival organizers demanded it. His rendition was longer, more free, more wild than anyone expected many people walked out. Coltrane couldn't help reworking the piece. He'd already moved on. A month before this landmark performance, he'd gathered 11 musicians just for one day for a radical big band recording he named Ascension. He invited his friend Chuck Stewart along to document the session. I got very few pictures of him smiling. I think a couple of times out at uh, Rudy's. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the Ascension session, I got a beautiful smile with John. But it wasn't something that I was specifically looking for, you know, per se. Recording Ascension pushed Coltrane's expanded band to their limits. Nothing in their careers had prepared them for the sheer demand of this 40-minute long improvisation. Yeah, well, it was, you know, such a, an intense uh, session. And it, was, it ran about 45 minutes, the tune. So you can imagine, if you heard Ascensions, uh, how that must have drained the musicians. Because I know that it certainly drained Elvin. Joe was the drummer because, uh, you know, how busy he is, and <laughs> he's all over the place. And after the first take, he said, if John asked me to do this again, I'm going to quit. And so John said, well, let's take a break and go outside. And John went and got food for everybody and so on. And guys laid around and chilled and told jokes and so on. And finally, John walked over to Elvin and said, let's do it again. And Elvin looked at him and said, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> they went back in. 45 minutes later, they had done take two. <laughs> and Elvis picked up a snare drum and threw it up against the wall. And said, that takes care of that, doesn't it? <laughs> and John said, yeah, Elvin, I think we got it. Ascension was a complicated record. 
a good way to start an argument, as one reviewer said. It completely split Coltrane's following and his band. McCoy and Elvin walked out. They both gave the same reason. All I could hear was noise. In a matter of a few years, Coltrane had gone from being a lyrical tunesmith to a chaotic experimentalist. He hadn't stopped playing his signature tunes. He just abandoned any discernible rhythm. He'd lost the beat. But had he, as many believed, also lost the plot? Train, when he started playing my favorite things, free, they ridiculed him awfully bad. And he sort of lost a lot of the critics who were in his corner at one point and then couldn't deal with what was going on with the change. And, and so they wrote negative stuff and, as, and some readers went the negative way and some didn't. It was very experimental when Train really started getting into this thing and uh, he was just really dealing with sounds and, and stuff that he could more or less put together. By finding that, he just like, just opened up the whole band and just let everybody just play whatever it is you can think about doing for an hour. Coltrane's last recordings stretched the tolerance of even his most ardent fans. Few people were prepared to listen to them for pleasure. Their titles, Om, Cosmic Music, reflected their roots in Eastern mysticism. And the sound reflected another new influence, Coltrane's tripping on the drug LSD. Coltrane was born in 1926. He was a lot older than the generation that we think of as hippies, but he fit right in. I mean, Coltrane was into Eastern religions. Early on, he was into improving himself and personal growth. And uh, he was into LSD. In improvisation, in any case, there's always that risk of failure. Even in that band, there were those days when it didn't go as well as, as other days. But I think there was a powerful, deep understanding between them that kept it always at an, at an incredible level. When he went off into the spiritual thing, he didn't, uh, he was interested in the experimentation with LSD, that's for sure, you know, definitely, definitely. But he left behind alcohol and, and hard drugs. And I think he was talking about astral bodies, because he used to talk a lot about his astral body. I think he was able to project himself out and move away from his own physical being. And he said, when you get to the point when you leave your body, when you are no longer in your body, when you are out there watching yourself play. This was what John was looking for, was this, to being carried beyond your physical being. You know? And the music kept you physical. What was happening to you while you were playing it, you moved beyond your physicality. <laughs> Though Miles Davis later impersonately said Coltrane died from taking too much LSD, the truth was more prosaic. In the spring of 1967, he was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. Approaching death, aged only 40, an interviewer asked him how he'd like to be remembered. Coltrane replied, as a saint. 
as upon the now, as I look out upon the world, and it's always been a thing with me, to feel that uh, all men know the truth. So therefore, I've always felt that the truth itself doesn't have any name on it to right. me. Mm-hmm. And uh, each man has to find this for himself, I think. I believe that our men are to, mm-hmm. are here to, to grow mm-hmm. themselves into the full, into the best good that they can be. At least this is what I want to do. And as I'm going there, becoming this, and uh, when I become, if I ever become, it, this will just come out of the horn. So whatever, it's gonna, whatever that's going to be, that's what it will be. Coltrane died on the 17th of July, 1967. At the memorial service, there was no eulogy, just a recital of the poem he wrote for a love supreme. preacher, you know, my mother started me to preach when I was about five or six years old, you know, reciting uh, scriptures, and, and the preachers would pick me up, throw me up in the air, the boy's going to preach one day, going to preach one day, so in just total rebellion, I'm not going to do that, but when I, when I uh, saw John Coltrane, I, I knew that it was, that that call was on my life to be a minister of the gospel. Praise the Lord, church. Hallelujah. I felt the, the effective transference of the Holy Ghost and that anointing coming through in a, in a very clear way to me. So it, it began a soul searching. You know, it's like if you're standing in a rainstorm and you're getting saturated in that moment of saturation, you don't know what all is going to come from that rain, whether it's going to be flowers or floods. So even with John Coltrane, I didn't have it very clear in my head, I'm going to go open up a church. But I knew that I had been in the rain and uh, and that uh, being saturated with that sound, that it, it had begun to turn my life around. God has used John Coltrane. We say that anointed sound that leaped down from the throne of heaven right out of the very mind of God and incarnated in one John Will I Am Coltrane. You know, I used to say that John Coltrane killed jazz. I mean, he killed it. It's dead. I mean, unless somebody can take it somewhere else, I mean, he transcended it beyond jazz. This film is dedicated to Elvin Jones, who died on May the 18th. Imagine is back on BBC4 on Friday with a special profile of dancer Carlos Acosta at 10 to 10. Next tonight, less flamboyant, perhaps, but equally impressive, racing with the quiet champion.
Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, perspective on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of John Coltrane. And uh, we're here at the Pan-African Channel Worldwide Radio Broadcast. My name is Abayomi Azikwe, and uh, this is Black Music Month. And uh, we, of course, are looking at uh, some of the luminary tradition of the music. And, of course, uh, we are here every week to uh, bring you some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. And uh, right now, we want to uh, take a musical interlude. And uh, at that time, of course, we uh, will uh, be back uh, with our concluding segment. Smile again. 
Kenny Burrell, uh, the jazz guitarist, uh, was brought up uh, here in the city of Detroit. Uh, he was contemporary of many of the legendary contributors uh, to African-American music uh, that uh, came out of uh, the city of Detroit. People like uh, Yusef Latif, uh, Barry Harris, Donald Byrd, and so many others. Let's listen to an interview with the legend Kenny Burrell discussing his musical evolution and the critical role of uh, his upbringing here in the city of Detroit. Let's listen in. given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome, everybody, inside the Blackwood Broadcasting Studios at an undisclosed institute of higher learning. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, and we're happy to have all of you along with us today. The urban legend of Detroit is only for those generations who were not alive during the time when that city epitomized Asphalt Canyon Blues. What we see today in the Motor City is a shell of what it was when my guest today was growing up there. A thriving car industry driven by a migration of blacks from the south after mechanized equipment replaced plantation workers. The combination of family, church, and education brought about a generation of local musicians like no other. Barry Harris, Ron Carter, Tommy Flanagan, Elvin Jones, Donald Byrd, and my guest. My guest's roots are in Detroit, but that was only the beginning of his journey. While at Wayne State, he started recording with the late, great Dizzy Gillespie. This was followed by stints with Oscar Peterson, John Coltrane, Jimmy Smith, and Kenny Durham. He is recorded as a leader on all the heavy jazz and blues labels like Chess Cadet, Blue Note, Prestige, Muse, Verve, and Concord. By the early 1970s, on top of his busy playing schedule, my guest started doing college seminars, which included the first regular course held in the U.S., chronicling the music of composer, pianist, and bandleader Duke Ellington. His unpretentious and practical style has helped galvanize knowledge and wisdom for a generation of up-and-coming musicians who did not experience the breakfast sessions at the Jockey Club in Atlantic City, Mean Old Frisco, or music before idiomatic breakdown. As Duke said, music is either good or bad. Today my guest is the leader of the Music and Ethnomusicology Department at UCLA. Perseverance, preservation, and whistling while he works. Kenny Burrell, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. Uh, happy to be with you. It's nice to talk to you, man. You know, I wanted, uh, my first question, you know, you grew up 
um, really at a time when there were no idioms. Uh, I talked to Mondell Lowe about this, and he's like, there were no terms. And and I'm curious, as uh, it was music, and so how do you talk to your students about developing their own sound, even though in our current analysis of music, everything must have a label? How do you try to break them out of that? Well, I just point out to them that the people who are, have have done the breaking through, the people who are, have become the giants in, in, in whatever field they're in, it can be music or it can be other things, literature, law, medicine, etc. cetera, uh, regardless of what style that you might place them in, they have an individual uniqueness. And, uh, and I tell them that everyone is different. I just remind them that, that that everyone is different and everyone is unique in a, in a, in, a, in a way, and it's a it's a matter of the individual to bring out their own uniqueness. And part of my job and part of the job of our faculty here is to sense that uniqueness, hear some of it, and try to help them bring it out, point it out to them. In other words, sometimes they don't realize what they have themselves, and that's because they're young. Mm-hmm. They're just experimenting and trying different things. But having been around a while and heard a lot of things, we can tell when something is different and something is new and something is unique. So when that happens, we um, try to point out to them that this is something that's very special to you and you should work on that and and other things like it. So I guess the bottom line is that... Um, Regardless of what's going on in the business, what labels are floating around, et cetera, uh, it's still up to the individual to bring out the best of who they are and no one else. You know, it, it strikes me so interesting, you know, when I, I talked to different guys, I've interviewed over 300 musicians, and, and, and uh, <clears throat> Gary Bartz was talking to me about, you know, while they, he was developing his own sound while learning certain types of music, whereas a lot, I, I tend to think that a lot of younger kids coming into students coming into your university and uh, music schools all over the country have learned how to play certain styles of music, but have been less focused on their own individual sound. And I think, is it more of a confidence thing? Like understanding like inside that you have your own voice, just like I'm doing with you right now. I wouldn't have been able to get up here uh, 12 years ago when I got my degree in broadcasting and interviewed Kenny Burrell. But, but, but I mean, it's about giving it's confidence. Is that what it boils down to? Well, confidence comes in various degrees. I mean, you, you, you learn the language by listening to other people that speak the language. In other words, you learn the technique by watching or copying other people who have the technique. But then what have you got to say yourself? And that's the point I'm, I, we try to stress to them that, um, you know, you've got the technique and you, you, you know how to do certain things, you know how to do a lot of things. Uh, but then uh, what is your story about? And I think part of what you're saying does have to do with confidence because the, uh, you, you have to have some confidence to have your own voice. In other words, as, as, in other words, you're asking yourself, is what I have to say good enough? 
you know, and and um, part of my job as a teacher is to say, yes, it is. You just have to develop it. But you, you're learning all these things that have been proven and by the giants that have gone before you, and that's been proven to be good. And now you have the technique, and um, you, you know we're never finished with technique. We always improve. But I mean, you have a, enough technique to start out on your on your own voyage here, and um, that takes some confidence. And that's part of my job to help them. Uh, Understand that they are they have something, and to help them bolster their confidence. I, I uh, you know, my, my first interview was with Pat Martino, and Pat told me a story about him and Charlie Erland in high school. They were 15 years old, and they went to the Jockey Club in Atlantic City, uh-huh. and they saw you and Jimmy Smith. Uh-huh. And Charlie Erland at the time was a, a was a tenor saxophone player, but that night the output from your band and especially Jimmy's organ uh, was just so explosive that he turned on a dime and was immediately right. he immediately started playing the Hammond organ. You know he didn't know what he was doing. He was playing bass lines and Pat was playing melodies. But the point is, what I'm getting at is, you say it's your job to give to help the students find their individual voice, but. Kenny, what what is concerning to me is, and maybe there's something built in, Royce Hall or something, but where are the live venues that these kids can, you know, take it outside of the classroom where Bohannon and Burrell are teaching and put it into the live music venues? Because, honestly, that's where you, that's where you get your chops from, right? Am I wrong? Am I right or wrong? Well, that was my school. That was our school. You mentioned Detroit. Detroit, growing up in Detroit was like going to a jazz university. <laughs> You know, that's what it was about. So now it's transferred, and uh, the thing is here, not just at UCLA but other schools, there's less and less jazz clubs, less and less of the, what used, as, you, as you say, what used to be available to uh, musicians trying to learn their way. And it's, it's, um, it's happening not only in colleges but in high schools. A lot of the, your experience as a student now is at the school. And so we have jam sessions here. Uh, um, the kids create their own jam sessions, and they come on Saturdays and different t- different hours. And when they're not having class, and they they jam. Okay, we used to we didn't have that opportunity when growing up. We just had to find somebody's house, go to somebody's house, which was cool, was beautiful, or go to if we were old enough to go in some club on a Monday night or something, or Sunday afternoon. Uh, that's not happening too much. It's happening, but not as much as it used to have happen. So, um, yeah, the um, the um, the um, experience has shifted from uh, out in, in 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 the real world, if you will, um, of the venues that are were around now in terms of this music uh, to uh, schools. Mm-hmm. I'm not not exclusively, but it, it certainly has changed. In other words, there's there's a lot more jazz activity going on in high schools and colleges, and and uh, and uh, what do you call it? College and high school festivals, jazz festivals, and that kind of stuff, seminars and workshops uh, than there was before. And there's a lot less activity in in the, in the various communities in terms of of jam sessions and so forth. How did you, um, you know, did you get to see John Lee Hooker live uh, in Detroit? Did you get to see the blues guys play there a lot? Yeah, the, the, I, 
the area that I grew up in, uh, well, it didn't matter. But the point is, uh, I there was uh, just local blues players that were that were you know we don't we don't they don't have, didn't have names, so the names are are gone now. But mm-hmm. the point is, that was part of the community. But yeah, occasionally we would we would uh, hear somebody like John Lee Hooker come through, and uh, and uh, then there was uh, uh, just a, an environment where the blues was not separated from jazz, from pop. It was all just music. And then, as you pointed out earlier, uh, the labels started to prop up. You know, mm-hmm. they they in other words, they have to identify something to sell it, so they had to. That was part of the the reason and but it's also part of the problem the, the separated things and uh but it you know it is what it is and that's the kind of uh, world we live in but uh yeah i heard uh, a lot of blues growing up part of who i am you know oh i mean when i listen to early early you know almost all the kenny burrell that i have on record and, and i mean it, it there's a, a real i mean there's one album called earthy that you did <laughs> i mean you can't uh-huh. get you can't get much more you know down to the core uh i just my i guess what i'm leading into is those guys really live the blues in the sense right. that they didn't i mean you could literally see them and they might be blind, or they might have no teeth, but, right. but yet they're playing and they're singing about their lives. And it's hard to, you know, if you're going to a university now, you know, it's hard to really play jazz or blues if you've kind of lived in suburbia your whole... I mean, that's all I'm saying is I think that... Yeah, the, I understand. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, and and you're right. It, it, but the point is, you're not going to you're not gonna be uh, like other people anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't expect, and uh, in a in, in general sense, people don't expect a jazz artist or a blues artist, if, since that's what we're talking about, to sound like somebody else. So you have your own story to tell in terms of blues. And even if you grow up in suburbia, um, um, you know, it's still... If you have something to say, it's important. It can be important. Yeah, and uh, so in one sense you're right. You, you can't expect youngsters to replicate, or duplicate, or replicate the uh, the sound of John Lee Hooker mm-hmm. or others. And some some kids try. They they learn that, and then. Uh, but the point is. Uh, the blue, the real blues fans are going to say, "Well, where's your story?" Same with jazz. That's right. You know, uh, and uh, that's what it's basically all about. And um, thank God for the people, because the the business, you know, the business has a tendency to manipulate things where people get confused. But overall, I think people are, are smarter than we give them credit for. Well. I think you're absolutely right, and I want to play a track of music for you right now. I'm not sure the last time you heard it, but uh, this this is a, a highlight of, of mine and uh, really showcases uh, Kenny Burrell's uh, uh, blues playing. So let's take a listen. We'll come back and talk about it. Thank you.
Frisco from 1963. That's a long time ago. <laughs> and that was with uh, Jimmy Witherspoon uh, on vocals and Leo Wright and uh, a guy who is still doing a beautiful cat. I got a chance to interview Gildo Mahones. Oh, yeah, Gildo, yeah. Great, great, great position. Um, yeah, well, um, that is a perfect example of how these things are intertwined not really separated in terms of blues and jazz. Exactly. Uh, and uh, as I said before, that's something that I, I grew up with, and uh, it's just a, I feel it's a natural part of who I am. It, you know, you look at the track. You were on uh, side A. Jimmy Smith, George Tucker rounded out the rhythm session. But, you know, I mean, it's not really uh, rocket science. Listen to the tunes. Mean Old Frisco, Rocks in My Bed, Bad, Bad Whiskey, Baby, Baby, Baby. Sail on, little girl. One scotch, one bourbon, one beer. These were these were rugged, rugged times, and you guys were coming in, calloused hands and and all, and very earthy, and just playing what you guys were living. And yet, and it, it was, uh, and it shines through. And I I love the fact that, um, you know, to be able to talk to 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 musicians who grew up when it was just music, and that's it. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, 
I was glad to be part of it, and uh, it's just a a beautiful, rich heritage, uh, a beautiful, rich history that we have uh, in this country, and uh, that's also part of my mission as a teacher, not just to help the students play better and find their own voice, but also to create an audience that appreciates all of this stuff. And that's what my the goal of my show is is to. I mean, I'm not a musician, so I'm not going to talk theory. But I'm going to talk about the things we've been talking about, you know, the well, idea, you know, breaking down uh, the idiomatic structure of things, because <clears throat> I think, you know, in my mind, uh, you know, where the word jazz came from, God, I mean, there's 900 million different ways of or p- different opinions. But I just say, what does it mean to contemporary America? I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to have any vision of it. I would just rather call it music. You know, right. if I'm going to if I'm going to open a jazz club. Uh, in Tucson, uh, or if I'm going to be the artistic director of a jazz club in Tucson, then I'm going to call the club a Love Supreme. There uh, you go. Okay, because because that connotates uh, Coltrane, and that connotates a per- you're going to brand it through people, the Burrell Club, not jazz. That right. that is that that word has been perverted over time. <laughs> but you know, I guess coming off of this, you know, it was so nice to hear. You playing the rhythm chops and then getting a solo. I just wanted you to talk because uh, you've had a lot of experience playing improvisational music and then playing with a vocalist. How did you learn to do both? Well, I think just you know, experience, practice, experience, and also uh, one of the things that um, I learned somewhere along the way is to be respectful of the uh, other musicians that you're performing with, and if you're accompanying. Uh, a vocalist or anybody, but particularly a vocalist, as we're talking about now, um, allow them the the room to express themselves and do things that will kind of uh, give them some buoyancy, boost, uh, inspire them in, in 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 certain various ways that will make them feel good. Uh, so, in other words, be complimentary, but don't get in the way. Right. And uh, I, that's been my philosophy for for many years, and uh, it, and it works pretty well, you know. Did, you know, going back, you said you were, you'd wind up at somebody's house in Detroit. How quickly did you uh, did did you link up with guys like uh, Barry Harris and 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 uh, and Youssef Latif? Did you guys did you know them when you were just a young boy growing up? Oh yeah, well. Um, that's two different extremes you just mentioned. It's interesting how you mentioned those two guys because uh, Yusuf is 10 years older than me and Barry is 10 years younger than me. <laughs> so when I was in high school, uh, which is Miller High School in Detroit, which was very uh, great for me because the music teacher, uh, Mr. Louis Cabrera, knew that I was interested in writing, and so he gave me some great private lessons because he saw my enthusiasm so much so to the extent where when I went to college and I majored in theory and composition, I didn't have to do any homework in music theory for a couple of years. <laughs> I, I was so prepared. Right. But prior to my being there, uh, Yusuf, uh, whose name was Bill Evans at, before that, uh, was in high, that same high school with my brother, Billy Burrell, who was my first teacher mm. on guitar. Uh, and they were, like I say, they were there ten years earlier. And but then, and then Barry Harris, who I I met later, 
because I was very active and and uh, around Detroit and Tommy Flanagan and I were best friends and we worked together a lot. And the group coming up behind us, the next the next generation was Barry Harris was in that group. Oh, I see. Okay. And I was in the group with Donald Byrd and Tommy Flanagan and Pepper Adams and that that group and Elvin. Okay. Wow. wow. So. Cool. Um, um, I was going to say something about um, oh Yusef. Yes. Well, Yusef was um, I worked. I had I had a, you know a really good band at that time, and Yusef was part of my group at one at one point. So was Pepper Adams, and I remember uh, talking to Yusef because I was in at Wayne State at the time, and I convinced him to go and and also encouraged him to start to play the flute and he did all of that and then the result is is history and he's now Dr. Lakeith and one of the great musicians of but I, I always feel good about that I kind of encouraged him to do that and, and again what's significant is that he was even an older student going back to school but it paid off so much, so well for him. Well and I mean you, you never stop growing. I, you know the funny thing is that <clears throat> this is a great story because we keep hearing about austerity amongst our own economics in this country now. And the truth is, back during the war, World War II, if not for austerity, uh, you might have actually played the saxophone, right? I mean, it, it was, just, it, right. was, it was the, <laughs> the materials for the guitar were actually cheaper because of the fact that we were trying to, we were in war. So to, take how did that happen? Right. Well, I, I was, when I was, uh, you know, in like seven, eight, nine years old, um, I was in, in really loved music, and, and my, as I say, my brother Billy was playing the guitar, and in my house in, in, in Detroit, uh, uh, there was music all around, my mother played a little piano, and my father liked to pick up the ukulele and stuff, but in other words, there was a lot of music in the house, and finally we got a radio, and I think it was and then the Victrola, which was the early record player. But the point was, uh, I was listening to Count Basie and Duke Ellington, and I really loved the saxophone, Herschel Evans and Coleman Hawkins. <clears throat> and plus the fact I was watching my brother play the guitar, and it didn't seem like it was such a big deal to me, you know, because I could play a few chords, and I figured, well, that's no big challenge. <laughs> so, but um, it turned out, it was like you say during the World War Two, and, and my father had passed, and so there was no no real money around, and we could not afford a uh, saxophone. So that dream had to go put aside. Um, and uh, then I uh, I said, well, I'm I just love music, so so I just reluctantly got a guitar because right. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to do something so I just played the guitar started playing the guitar and I bought my first guitar for 10 bucks at a pawn shop and five of which was sent to me by my brother Billy who was in the army so that began the uh, the, the the road for me down guitar lane and then I at that same time I heard Charlie Christian who was playing the guitar like a saxophone anyway with the amplifier and so forth so I said, the guitar's not so bad, so I stuck with it, and then I started to hear Oscar Moore, great Oscar Moore with Nat King Cole and others. And all along, the blues was there, you know, just sitting right beside me. 
You know, it's, 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 it's yeah, I was going to ask you, my next question was when you heard the amplified guitar of Charlie Christian, that's when you kind of were like, oh, actually, the guitar actually is quite an, uh, an impressive oh, yeah. instrument, you know? Right up right up front line there with the, with the horns and the trumpets and the saxophone with the amplifier, so that... Then I was okay. <laughs> so, so when you got when you got hooked on the guitar, um, were guys like Donald Byrd? They were still in Detroit. Had they moved, or were you able? No, to... we were we were all there together. Uh, right. Uh, we stayed there until uh, well, through I, through when I went to college, uh, Donald was still there, and uh, uh, went into our into our early twenties. There was a uh, Flanagan and. Um, Donald Bird, Elvin, I'm trying to think of the people, Paul Chambers. Oh, my gosh. Uh, what a blazing, you know. blazing. So, I mean, you guys would get together at somebody's... Yeah. Bu- well, we had, you know, a little, we had a little jazz club. We used to have jam sessions every Monday night at this theater, and uh, a small art theater, you know, or actor's theater. And, and, but we uh, had sessions, jam sessions at, at each other's homes, you know, houses, wherever they were, and... Uh, and we'd get a gig every now and then, and we'd play. But jazz was 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 cool, and and it, we were just wanted to play. And it didn't matter who was the leader. We, as long as we, whoever got the gig was okay, <laughs> you know. And because we just wanted to play, you Absolutely. know. And so that was a, like I said earlier, that was like a school because we were learning from each other. We were buying music. We were exchanging music. We were transcribing a lot of stuff off records because we couldn't buy. A lot of the music that's in print today, the students now they can buy anything, and online you can get anything, you can get everything online. So. Well, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you there because I think that, uh, especially the stuff that we're gonna play today, you can't find that online, and I think that 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 um, you can go. Here's the bottom line: when there was when when LPs, when when records, when there was a commerce industry built around music. Then all of a sudden, you're reading liner notes, you're seeing pictures, and you're listening to the music, and all of a sudden, Kenny Burrell comes to life. But now, you go onto iTunes, I'm just going to get that 99-cent song because I heard it and I like it a lot. No idea of who the person is, you know, the the kind of, you know, I mean, (laughs) when you read about Kenny Burrell, you pick up on three things, love, uh, humbleness, and humanity. But you uh, you don't get that from a from a digital download. And oh so, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, yeah, you're and, absolutely right. But I mean, so so while so while there's more, I've heard this from a lot of the guys. You know, there's so much more out there than ever before. But in that case, it's almost there's almost too much to choose from, yeah. and you're overwhelmed. And so, you know, it's it's important to go back. And I I, I say to myself, okay. You guys were all somewhat geniuses musically, and you were really active, but. Um, if you could, what was so exciting about transcribing and sharing? It was just the idea that it, you guys felt like you were really creating your own new sound. Is that it? Well, part of it, we, we, we were learning, but the thing is, we were learning more than we realized. When I was talking about you can get anything these days, I'm talking about music itself, the, 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 the notation. Right. You can get any, any, any of that is online, uh, that's, you know, that we used to have to, that was in, in books, and but... What I'm trying to say, growing up in Detroit, there weren't even the books. We had to transcribe the the melodies and some of the solos ourselves. And in that process, you really learn and understand what's going on because you it takes you time to absorb it and digest what you're what you're transcribing. So you get a theory lesson as you're doing it. 
you get a, a lesson in uh, uh, harmony and uh, and and uh, melody as you're doing this, and you uh, and you also understand uh, kind of what that musician was thinking about. But now, as you say, there's so much available uh, that the, 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 the it's almost like they don't know what to choose. So that's another part of, of of my mission. Our mission is to help them understand what is important in terms of the jazz repertoire, you know. And uh, so that's part of what I do in terms of guiding them to learn certain songs. I mean, there's thousands of songs that they can get immediately by just uh, pushing a few buttons. And uh, you know, the, I just I don't want to. I just wanted to say, you know, it's. What what it just comes to me right now is this idea of it's the, the, there's so much music, but at the same time, some one of the most exhilarating things is to to identify the people as well because yeah, because right. you know you you are a living example of that. We just R.I.P. Uh, Donald Byrd. We just lost him, and yeah. you know, but but there were guys like Donald Byrd who were who were leaders at Howard University who 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 would take their young students this is how flexible it was back then but i mean he was able to take his students and take them on the road right, and and, right. and and that is that's like wow you know i i i tend to think like you know that to me is real time learning and i don't know if we will ever get back to that ever but that to me is one of those historical things. I think one of the reasons why people don't know what to choose is because they don't know their history. That's just, That's right. you know, You're right. but we got another track of music here. Again, fashioning a unique part of Kenny Burrell's repertoire. Let's take a listen and come back. Okay. Thank you. 
to go out on a limb and say that was you whistling. Yeah, there was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk to yeah. for for those uh, that was from an album, Kenny Barella album, Asphalt Canyon Suite, um, and uh, and I've noticed recently, wow. That's a whole new uh, sound. I mean, where did the, where did that whistling come in? How long were you doing that from when you were a boy? Oh, everybody whistles. I I think <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I like, think to I have just, to have the guts I, to put it on an album is different, though. Well, it just seemed to be appropriate because um, one of the things that I I don't know if you've ever been to New York. I, I grew been, up in New York. Okay, then yeah. you understand when the streets are not busy. Mm-hmm. And you're walking down one of those streets in New York with all the buildings on the side. If you whistle, you get an immediate sound, a special sound in New York like no other place. It has a, a, a reverberation. And that kind of was kind of what made me do that. Because it's the Asphalt Canyon, which is dedicated to New York. <laughs> right. And it's very, uh, you know, the <laughs> the album is... I was curious because it, it says asphalt, so I'm like, okay, that's clearly this, the connotation of a city. Right. But then the canyon, is that just the, the echoes, the reverberation of the whistle? Or well, is, to me, it's, yeah, um, it's kind of like that's what Manhattan itself mm-hmm. kind of represented to me. <laughs> that's, oh, that's cool, man. I, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that is, I'm going to have to do that because I've spent many nights, at, you know, going home, at three or four in the morning, not necessarily sober, but uh, I gotta go. I gotta next time whistle and hear that reverberation. That's pretty well, cool. You can hear people doing. You can you can be in your apartment and hear people in the street doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that might be where I got that from. But the point is, it's a kind of an image of that city. You know, it's it's an, when as best you can. That was part B of Asphalt Canyon uh, Asphalt Canyon Blues and. Um, you know, how, did that was that spontaneous, or was that something that you had thought about going into the session? I mean, were you just because I mean, you did a long solo before that. Then it was whistling. Then you go back to a solo. I don't know. I don't remember how I came up with that, but I, I'm just guessing now that, or trying to remember rather that um, that that was the reason I wanted to put that sound in there mm-hmm. to kind of connect with the city itself and not you know not leave jazz but just kind of put a sound in there that would be more directly associated with the real life of what's going on in in, in the streets there uh i you know there, there's no listing of the of the accompanist but i wanted i noticed an album earlier i think it's called soul call i'm not exactly sure you're the leader right. on it yeah <laughs> and i wanted you to spend some time just talking about a uh, total unsung hero. He's left us now, but a uh, a conguero that uh, from a Latin conguero who was always the first kind of first call jazz guy was Ray Barreto. And I oh, yeah. and, and I can you talk about what Ray Ray was like? You know, I was I was born in '78. I mean, Ray, I wasn't. I never saw him, but I know that he used to go to schools, and I and he was just he was a rocker. And and I wanted to ask you about him. Well, Ray was first of all, he was a great musician. And uh, one of the most flexible uh, musicians I ever met in terms of of, of Latin percussion. And uh, somehow he got connected with uh, the jazz labels like Prestige or Savoy. I forget which one he was recording with the most. That's how I met him at probably one of those sessions. And then 
you know, through the years, recorded more of him, became friends with him, and then toward the end of his life, we did uh, some recordings together, just with his band and me as a special guest. I don't know if you're aware of those. Uh, no, not. No. Duke, Duke Ellington uh, Clave, that was one of them. And, uh, in fact, that was a very nice record. It's Ellington, Duke Ellington Clave, Ray Barreto, and I was a special guest. But the thing about Ray was that he knew how to put that spice, that that Latin spice to the flavor and to the, uh, the rhythm. Uh, and it still was not disturbing what we were doing in terms of jazz concept, but it added a certain nice touch, as, as Juan Tizo would say, a Latin tinge, but I think it was more than a Latin tinge. <laughs> it was a... Um, it was a, I feel it added a, a extra flavor to what we were doing, and he knew exactly, again, how to accompany, to add, to support, and not get in the way. And he was he was perfect for that. Did you did you uh, have a chance to go to the Palladium to see those guys play the 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 Afro? Couple of couple of times, yeah, yeah. When I lived in New York, yeah. And one more thing, uh, I, I was going, I'm glad I played the whistling track, uh, the Asphalt Canyon, but uh, you, you got to tell, there's a track on here that said, Going to Jim and Andy's. What, right. was, what was Jim and Andy's about? Jim and Andy's was a bar, a uh, bar restaurant that all of the guys used to hang out in. Uh, I think it was, let me just think, it was around 54th Street between Broadway and 8th. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a, it was a, uh, a bar where a lot of the uh, studio musicians would would hang out, especially guys who were busy in the studios, and the jazz guys as well. But this mainly the the uh, the guys, the studio guys. But a lot of those were jazz musicians as well. And then the Jim and Angie's was also on Forty Eighth Street for a while. Um, uh, near Sixth Avenue, and then they moved up to Fifty Fourth. I think it was Fifty Fourth Street. It was on Forty Eighth Street near Sixth Avenue, and it was just a nice place where they had great food, and you'd see all your friends in there, different musicians, and uh, so uh, especially if you were uh, um, uh, a guy who was busy in the studios, where you had to do two, maybe three record dates a day, that would be a nice place to just go and relax and have some food and hang out with the, with your, with the other musicians. So that was kind of just what that was, Jim and Andy's. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, and and, and uh, I only say that because it has a, it has a real, uh, you know, funky blues kind of thing. So I said, you know, I, Kenny must have been there, you know, having a, having some stromboli with a, with a scotch or something like that. Right, you know? well, all of that, and, uh, <laughs> and on various days, it, you know, they had a great menu, and uh, it, was, it was cool, and uh, a good place, good memories from that place. Do, do you have a, a recollection, like, when you, it seems to me that when, when you first got in, uh, started recording, especially on your own, Albums uh, for Verve, uh, there were those those labels had a, a very much a, a direct motto of saying, well, these albums might not give us a, may not be million dollar sellers, but it's what we stand for. This is the music that we stand for, and therefore the artists like yourself had a lot more creative input. And I'm right. just I'm curious. I mean, someone like yourself, you probably have always 
uh, had that ability to to get your two cents in there. But I did you notice at any point where you know a lot of that creative input from the musician uh, was taken away? Was there a year or a certain point where you just said, "Wow, this is you know these guys are playing and they're they're not really even playing what they want to play." Well, yeah, that happens. Uh, that has happened through the years. I was, as you say, I was very fortunate that I I was able to pretty much do what I was okay with uh, in terms of the the plan, the plans for recording. I never had too much objection about it. Uh, maybe one or two occasions, uh, but. For the most part, it's, it's, it's been very, very uh, satisfying, uh, and even the, even at times when the, I don't want to go into that today, but even when it was not uh, the best of situations, uh, it turned out okay. It just wasn't ideal for what I had in mind. But for the most part, I'd say well over 95% of the time I was um, okay with how, how things went. Mm-hmm. But Again, you have to. Um, uh, how can I say this? Um, if I'll put it another way, if you don't speak up for what you believe in, uh, oftentimes you're not going to get it. <laughs> and 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 I uh, had several times when I had to really speak up. Sometimes in very strong terms, and sometimes very diplomatically. Uh, but that's the way it is because different people have different priorities. You know, a musician has one, and A and R person or or company executive may have another one. Exactly. And so, you know that, and uh, if, if if they have a disagreement, then it's got to be solved. But my thing is, I've always remembered that my name is going to be on the record, not this person I'm having a problem with. You know, they're thinking about their job, maybe about if they don't produce a certain amount of sales or whatever, they, they're going to lose their their job. Um, whatever, you know, without getting into too much detail here, um, to me it's it's worth fighting for because your reputation's on the line when you make a recording, and uh, and I've always remembered that, so I've tried to make sure that I did what I believed in. And, and I, again, I feel I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah, no, I was going to say, because the, the A&R guy is, you know, is, is, is intent on, well, we need to get make a hit. We need to make a hit, you know. Well, and, not all of them. Not all of them. I, but what, the point exactly. Is, it, it, sometimes it, even, even in an artistic uh, judgment, uh, there could be some problems. And uh, you have to... You know, the bottom line is whose name's on this record? That's and right. What are the people going to think when they hear the record? <laughs> they're not going to blame the NR guy. They're going to blame the person who's their name that's behind this record. Well, and, I, and whether they, they can do it, people in their private lives can do whatever they want, but the point is that Kenny Burrell has to live with that for the right. rest. You know, I mean, you yeah. want to make sure that your imprint is on that, and that's that's a beautiful thing. Uh, we're going to play one more one more track of music. This is a, an earfold test for you, Mr. Burrell, um, and uh, this is really Jake Feinberg's pocket for Kenny Burrell. So let's take a listen. We'll come back. Okay.
That song was. I don't remember now. <laughs> <laughs> we we have uh, up the street, round the corner, down the block. Nin- All right. 1974, Kenny Burrell, Fantasy Records. Actually, right. actually, a song written by Alan Gums. Right. Up and, the street. And uh, there, there's a cat on here that I need you to uh, expand on because he's one of the most beautiful players. Uh, I've heard him with Cal Jader. I hear him with you a lot. As uh, and I'm not sure if he has left us yet or not. But it's Richard Wyans. Oh yeah, he's still around in New York. Uh, I, I, you got to link me up with that guy because one of the, I mean, you put him on here, and him and Jerome Richardson, Andy Simpkins, Lenny McBrown, and Mayuto Correa, Correa, uh, right. unbelievable. I mean, really, and and that's when did you, did you actually, how long did you live in San Francisco for? I didn't. You did. So I used to, I used to go there a lot. That's all. I, I signed with uh, Fantasy Records. I lived in L.A. when I was doing that, I believe. And I would just go up there and record. I had a contract with them. I was doing like maybe a couple of records a year. Right. Yeah. And you, that was in the that was really in the uh, in the early seventies. And again, yeah, it, I was I was living in Los Angeles. And yeah. Because I was gonna say there's there's songs on here like Salsalito Nights. I mean, clearly uh, one uh, thing that was going on at a certain time pre-internet uh, was pre uh, pre computer really was. This idea of these regional hotbeds of music—you had them in Detroit, you had them in Indianapolis, you had them in in San Francisco, and so on. Did you ever uh, get to a point where, or did you ever walk into a, a city anywhere where you were kind of just floored by the regionalism of the music that you weren't aware of at the time? Uh, not in the United States, no. Never. So not. Uh, but not, in, in other parts of the world, yes. But the, the, I think the I did spend. Uh, I think it was about a month. Maybe a month, maybe six weeks in Sausalito. I was working in a club nearby, and I I, I stayed there for that length of time. That's when I wrote that song, Sausalito Nights. What club was it? I can't even remember the name of it now. It's no longer no longer there, but it was on in Sausalito. Okay, I'm gonna. Have to yeah. be, I'll probably have to get. And who were you playing with? You had a, a, a residency there. I just was a 
I was there for like a summer six week gig. I don't I forget who I probably it was Lenny McBrown and I forget who else, maybe guys who lived in the area. You know. You you just uh you you said something that caught my attention. Not in the states. Where in the world did you go that floored you when you heard that uh, certain music that you were never exposed to? Oh, all over in, in Japan, in France, in Brazil, every every you know different places I've been. It's uh, it's incredible, you know. The uh, my my final question for you, um, just if you would, uh, you've probably been asked this before, but uh, just wanted to spend a little time talking about your relationships with two of your peers. One was Grant Green, and the other was a, a, a hard scrabble blue-collar guitar player from Indianapolis, Wes Montgomery. And, right, and, right. You, and, you know, to me, the three of you were Midwest linked inseparably, but I know the other guys succumbed to their own things, but they were what made them, and Col throw Coltrane in there as well. Right. What... You know, what were those intangible things that made them so special? Well, I think there is a unwritten understanding. Uh, there is a credo kind of among in jazz because the you know the essence of jazz is improvisation. So the thing is that we've been talking earlier: uh, be who you are, and so. Each one of these guys that you just mentioned, Grant Green, uh, Wes Montgomery, and John Coltrane, they had their own unique individual voices. Welcome back. And that was a uh, extended interview uh, with legendary uh, Detroit jazz guitarist Kenny Burrell. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Our continuing uh, tribute, Commemoration of Black Music Month, uh, will be also added uh, in our next uh, several programs throughout the month of June uh, 2022. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with another uh, great uh, Detroit uh, legend, and that is Donald Byrd. This is one of his earliest recordings uh, entitled Bird's Word, music recorded in 1955. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.